0: Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness, and every week I sit down for a gorgeous conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. On today's episode, oh, and this is such a good one, I'm joined by Dr. Moya McTeer, where I ask her, What is going on in the galaxy? Welcome to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. We have a very exciting episode this week. Every week is exciting, but this one's like really fucking exciting because it's about our galaxy. It's about like the world in which we live. So in the words of Mrs. Dooley, without any further ado, welcome to the show, Dr. Moya McTeer, who is an astrophysicist, folklorist, and science communicator based in New York City. Her new book is The Milky Way, an autobiography of our galaxy. She also is the host of the podcast *Exolore*, which you all are going to want to listen to a lot after this episode of Getting Curious. Dr. McTeer, how are you?
1: Oh my God, Jonathan, I am so excited to be here. I'm trying not to blow out my mic right now, but just seeing your gorgeous face and knowing it's talking to me, I am living right now.
0: Oh my God, I'm living with your fucking gorgeous face. Also, just so that people know, you're a literal doctor who is an astrophysicist. You literally went to Harvard and you're the first person in the school's history... To study astronomy and mythology. What?
1: I like to break rules.
0: (laughs) That is like a major, like... D-A space F-U-Q moment. Like, fuck, I lo- like I didn't even know that there were still students in college now that, like, could break a record like that, that they're the mm-hmm. first to study. Like, that's just because like, you would have thought that it's all been done before. And you were like,
1: uh, uh, uh. Mm, you would have thought. But no, Harvard is old. They're stuffy. They are set in their ways. So they have this list of pre-approved ma- double majors that you can do. And uh, surprise, folklore and astronomy, not on that list.
0: I I just I love the the duality of the brain that you can you can be serving like hardcore math, hardcore science. Like I will beat you at any math bee of all time. Like I'm a literal scientist, and also that you can go folklore and you can go esoteric, and you can. I just I you must have like something where like the right and left hemisphere of your brain is like super on fucking fire.
1: That corpus callosum, it's it's super strong connecting the two of them. <laughs> yes,
0: or like maybe you don't have one. Maybe Ooh. there is no divide. Like maybe your brain is just firing on like 96% all the like yes. you're the one that uses all of it as opposed to all of us who are using like 4% or whatever. Okay, so anyway, back to the Milky Way. I think the part of my interest in the galaxy and stars and like the Milky Way it started when coming from rural Illinois, like there's not so much light pollution that you can't like see like a lot of stars. And we kind of yeah. lived out in the country, so we really got to see like some really clear stars. I thought when I went to Japan, I was like, oh my God, I'm gonna be in the southern hemisphere so I can see like the southern stars. Uh no. And then same with the Philippines, and it was like, no. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, how fucking far south <laughs> do I gotta go to get into the southern hemisphere around here? So then Australia finally. Full Southern Hemisphere. So then I was, I got that app on my phone and I was like looking at like the Southern Hemisphere constellations. And then I was like, my brain's gonna break. We mm. also had done an episode on the LEGO study and like gravitational waves that yes. also broke my brain because of like 3D stuff. Yeah. So here today, I'm going to try again to better understand galaxies what's the deal I, I just want to I am I live in the Milky Way I think like mm-hmm. I want to learn to be its friend and stuff like I want to learn to speak its language so I'm minding my own business I look up I see all these stars and like we are in the Milky Way
1: mm-hmm. we are a part of it like we th- we are the Milky Way the Milky Way is us we're made of the stars of the Milky Way so maybe
0: you're on Grinder, maybe you're on Tinder, maybe you're on Raya, I don't know mm. your life, mm. but you swipe across, you you see a box and it's mm-hmm. shivering your timbers. It says the Milky Way on the top. It's all these stars. What's that profile looking like? How old are we? Is it location everywhere? What are its interests? Like yes. endless expansion?
1: Mm-hmm. What, okay. what is it? Okay, well, first of all, uh, in the book, the Milky Way is in this long-term epic romance with the Andromeda galaxy. So it being on one of these dating profiles, I actually think is very in line with the Milky Way because it's super sassy. And I think that it would love to get on dating profiles to make Andromeda jealous.
0: Can we see Andromeda
1: from yes. here with the telescope? You can see Andromeda on a dark enough night with your own eyes without a telescope. Okay. So how old is the Milky Way? That is kind of a hard question to answer because galaxies don't, like, form in a snap moment. They form slowly over time by things collecting through gravity. So the best way to answer this question is probably by saying how old is the oldest star in the Milky Way? And we have found stars in the Milky Way that formed... Um, a few hundred million years after the Big Bang. So the the Milky Way, it's more than 10 billion years old.
0: Okay. It's
1: super freaking old.
0: And the universe is always going outwards, they say yeah. in the news.
1: Yes. The universe is expanding and that expansion is speeding up, which astronomers even a hundred years ago would be surprised by. They thought that the expansion would be slowing down. Uh, so... We don't have a good coordinate system for the entire universe, so it's not like I can give you coordinates for where the Milky Way is in terms of the whole universe. But um, I can say that the Milky Way is part of the local group of galaxies. We found about 50 galaxies that are all gravitationally bound with the Milky Way. And outside of that, there are other clusters of galaxies. And you can find clusters in super clusters of galaxies. So it's kind of like the, the universe is fractal, where you see these same patterns happening on bigger and bigger scales as you zoom out.
0: Is our 50 galaxies part of a super galaxy or is the 50 galaxies that we're a part of like a super galaxy because there's 50 or is a super galaxy like 500?
1: Super galaxy cluster would be like 500. So we are in the local group and uh, the local group is a member of the Virgo super cluster. Mm. It's named the Virgo super cluster because the biggest cluster of galaxies at its center is the Virgo cluster of galaxies.
0: So... Where is it located? Like, where are we? Are we like kind of more like the south part of the universe or more like Mm. the north part of the universe? Are we kind of in the middle Uh, because we're
1: fierce or do we even know? I wish I could tell you. We have mapped a lot of the universe. Uh, There's this, this imaging survey called the Sloan Digital Sky Survey that has given us a pretty good idea of the large scale structure of the universe. But... It, the universe doesn't have a center um it's it's not like a a sphere in the way that we can imagine a sphere because the universe kind of exists in more dimensions than we can imagine um we say that the universe is flat even as someone who has studied astrophysics for ten years like I have a hard time understanding what it means for the universe to be flat so I wish I could tell you an answer about where we are, but I cannot.
0: (laughs) So physicists think that the universe is flat? Yes. Because it's so fucking big that it's like flat?
1: Yeah, it's so big that it's flat and it will, we think, we're not totally sure because we don't understand all of uh, how dark energy and dark matter work, but we think that it's just going to expand forever. Um, So if you imagine like a, a flat plane, For something to be able to expand forever, it has to be flat because if it's curved at all, then it will eventually curve back in on itself, given enough time. Wow. Yeah.
0: What does the Milky Way like to do?
1: Oh, I love this question. Yeah,
0: what does it like to do?
1: The Milky Way loves to make stars. It makes Uh about a handful of stars every single year. Most of those stars are much less massive than our sun. Um, The Milky Way also loves to eat gas. Uh, so in the book, I say that it eats other galaxies because galaxies are eating each other. They're colliding. They're um, absorbing each other's gas all the time. Girl, are we in danger, no. girl? Okay, no, no not right now. The Milky Way is the biggest, strongest galaxy in the local group. We dominate this space. So other galaxies are in danger, but only for like, you know, a, a billion years from now. Mm.
0: So it eats gas. Mm -hmm. It makes stars. Mm -hmm. Um, Are all stars hot like the sun?
1: Some stars are hotter than the sun.
0: Mm. But none are cold.
1: None are cold, uh, but... I'd say that our sun is about 6,000 degrees Kelvin, and that's pretty average. Most stars are around 3,000 Kelvin, so half as hot as the sun. And then you get these really massive hot stars that can be, you know, like 15,000 Kelvin at their surfaces.
0: That's just hot hot as fuck. Oh, yeah. Okay, so... Does it have like a body mm-hmm. like the Milky Way? Like, is it kind of like, is there like a head and like a middle and like the legs or something?
1: It is a body, but not like a human body. It's more like a jellyfish body, maybe, mm. or, or something that's more spherical because uh, in the middle of the Milky Way is... An area that we call the bulge, and when I was taking my um, stellar astronomy class, where we were learning about the bulge of the Milky Way, I I was 22 at the time, but I laughed every single time the professor said it because in my heart I'm like a 12 year old boy. <laughs> um, but in the center is the bulge of the Milky Way, and it's this big. Kind of spherical, chaotic region where stars are moving really fast and they're super close together. And then the bulge is surrounded by the disk, which is what most people think of when they picture the Milky Way in their head, those beautiful spiral arms um, moving in the disk. And that is where most of the stars are in the Milky Way. That's where we are in our solar system. And then if you zoom out from that, Everything in the disk and the bulge is surrounded by the dark matter halo. Uh, this is this uh, huge bubble, basically, of dark matter. Uh, there's some gas in there. There aren't many stars. Can we see dark matter? Unfortunately not. Our human eyes cannot see it because it doesn't interact with light.
0: So, because I got to say, you know, we keep talking about this dark matter, Not me and you, but I feel like I read about it.
1: Yeah, it's a big thing in the astronomy community. We're trying to understand it. What is it? Yeah. Yeah. Oof. Girl, I wish I could tell you. There are a lot of ideas about what it is. So
0: it's not the night sky.
1: No, it's not the night sky. Because the night sky is just like the absence of light that we can see, but dark matter, it actually is material. Like if you could get out there and interact with it, you'd be able to feel it. You'd be able to feel its gravitational pull. And that's actually how we study it because we can't see it. We have to study it by looking at how it moves stuff around it.
0: So it might pull stars like closer to it.
1: Even more powerful than that, it pulls whole galaxies closer to us. Yeah, we actually kind of owe the existence of the Milky Way to dark matter uh, because early on in the universe, the temperatures, the average temperature of the universe was much higher. Everything was packed closer together. It was harder for uh, temperatures to cool down. And so dark matter, we think, was inherently cooler than the other types of matter in the universe so it made it easier for things to clump together easier for gravity to take hold so yeah we uh, we probably wouldn't have had a Milky Way galaxy without dark matter
0: so gravity exists everywhere in the universe mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. it's just like differently strong if there's like a gigantic star there or whatever like affecting the things around it dif- like more
1: Yeah, the strength of gravity depends on the mass of an object. The more massive an object is, the greater gravitational pull it has.
0: Okay, so we're in, like, the disky part, and then it's mm-hmm. jellyfishy, so, like, is there anything outside the dark matter that's still Milky Way, or does that get into, like, Andromeda and the other ones?
1: Yeah, then you're into the intergalactic medium, or the IGM, and that's, like, there's some gas out there, but mostly it's it's empty space.
0: So how long until you get to Andromeda after the dark matter IGM?
1: Well, if you were traveling at the speed of light, then it would take two and a half million years. But nothing we have could possibly travel that fast. So even if you're still looking at the fastest rocket ships that humans have made so far, it's going to take like forever.
0: (laughs) So is that why we're probably safe from aliens outside the Milky Way? They would have to like build the technology and then like Mm. launched it like 100 million years ago or like have gone fast, like invented something that goes faster than the speed of light, which is like probably not no one can mm. be that smart. Probably,
1: I don't know. There could be wormholes. I I love science fiction, so I think that you think wormholes
0: could be a thing. Like if like a little like yeah. glue powder, like Harry Potter, like <laughs> you go to this like a certain point and you could maybe touch it, and then like it could maybe transport you like faster.
1: I think that if you have a powerful enough source of energy that you can do a lot. There are physicists who are coming up with ways that we could open up wormholes. We just don't have the, the, the power yet to do it. Um, or the power to sustain it and keep it stable. But, um, there are galaxies closer to us than Andromeda. Oh, there is? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There are these little, uh, we call them dwarf galaxies oh. that kind of orbit. Yeah. I don't love it either. Um, they orbit around and in the dark matter halo. So have you ever heard of the large and small Magellanic clouds? No. You can see these with your eyes, too. Um, if you go to the Southern Hemisphere, they look like two little splotchy clouds in the night sky named after Ferdinand Magellan, who, uh, you know, was supposed to have circumnavigated the globe, but he did not. He died before he made it all the way around. But we still name them after him, whatever. <laughs> and... Those are much closer to us than the Andromeda galaxy. In fact, the, uh, the distance between us and the large Magellanic cloud is smaller than the size of Andromeda. So Andromeda could not squeeze between us and the, these clouds.
0: And those clouds are like dwarf galaxies.
1: Yeah, they're, they're, little, they're little galaxies that have fewer stars and fewer mass, massive things.
0: How many stars and planets does the Milky Way contain, like, roughly?
1: A hundred billion stars. Oh, my God. I know, right? And uh, we think that on average, most stars have a couple of planets. So there are hundreds of billions of planets in the Milky Way alone. (sighs) Yeah. Yep.
0: This is where I always start to feel overwhelmed because my brain just goes at so many. And then I think about, like, Bible school when you're little and they're like... These things are just too complex for humans to understand. Mm-hmm. And then I'm like
1: I invite you to like sit with it and like really think, what does what does a hundred billion look like? And what does it mean to be just one of a hundred billion stars? Uh, yeah.
0: Part of I think the curiosity of like trying to understand the Milky Way and just like galaxies and universe is like that age old question of like, is there more of us? Or is there mm-hmm. is there more like someone like is there there must be someone else? Because if there's a mm-hmm. hundred billion stars and how many are like sun-like like like sun-ish
1: only like five to ten percent
0: so five ten percent of a hundred billion is still 10 billion so if there was five billion suns then that means there could be like 50 there's like three on average Mm -hmm. you know like just three like the you know the star chucks out three planets right that could be like 15 billion earth-like planets
1: right so many options and planets can form and have life around different types of stars than the sun.
0: Because every once in a while, I feel like in the news, we'll see that like, you know, astronomers and like astrophysicists like discovered like, you know, some like potential like, you know, the Goldilocks planets. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, yes, exactly.
0: Is there like, do you ever read about those? Do you think that's cool? Or you're more, like, no, I'm like more like physicist. So I like the math, but I do <laughs> read those because it's like, you know, my email beeps with because I have it you know, set, like set to like Goldilocks <laughs> planets.
1: No, this is my bread and butter. My thesis in grad school was about the habitability of planets and where we can find planets that are suitable for life in the galaxy. So I think about that all the time. Unfortunately, we don't have the technology right now to learn enough about a planet outside of our solar system to say whether or not it's truly Earth-like. Because to say something is Earth-like, we would need to know what type of star it orbits, which is pretty easy. We would need to know how far away it is from its star, which is also pretty easy because that gives us um, a sense for, for how hot or cold the planet might be. But What's not easy is learning about the atmosphere of that planet because they're so small and so far away that it's hard to see their atmosphere. And it's even harder to figure out what's happening on their surface.
0: Yeah, because what if the water looks like water, but it's actually Mm -hmm. like... Like the fucking Dante's Peak, like acid river water. So it looks all peaceful, but actually, honey, you jump in there like you're getting scolded because it's sulfuric acid.
1: Mm -hmm, Exactly. And I, I firmly believe that when we're talking about life out there in the galaxy, that we need to be very careful about only looking for conditions that would work for life like us, because we like liquid water, we are very closely connected to to the molecular structure of water. But, you know, I can imagine life forms that evolve with liquid methane, for example, or um, science fiction writers have talked about liquid ammonia as a potential base for life. So, yeah, there's, there are so many types of planets out there that have so many different qualities. And I think that life would Adapt to those environments? Why should we be special in, you know, like what we have is the only way that life can form?
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Like there's so many possibilities. And Mm -hmm. it's like our earth evolved in such a way that's like with so many improbabilities for us to actually like make it here. Like so much had to happen. So maybe that's like, you know, equally improbable, but like just like different molecules in other places. Yeah. That's so you feel like that's in all of your research and everything, like you like do you like do you think that there must be other life even if it doesn't look like us and it's like not like like just like little like microorganisms at the mm-hmm. very least right
1: Yeah, absolutely. I do. Um, We have even seen creatures here on Earth that don't need water to survive. We have seen creatures that don't rely on the sun as the base of their food chain. Like
0: anaerobic thingies or whatever.
1: Yeah, there are anaerobic thingies. There are little plants at the bottom of the ocean that don't need sunlight. They do chemosynthesis. So the fact, like we say often that the sun is the basis for our entire food chain. It doesn't have to be. So we we see examples here on Earth of life that doesn't exist in the conditions that we think are necessary. So why can't they exist elsewhere?
0: So okay, now I'm going back into my questions because like I just (laughs) that really like hijacked my little questions. I just I had to go there. Is it possible for us to see the galaxies like outside of the Milky Way and like into Andromeda or the other ones? Like we can see other whole ass galaxies.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We can see them. We can look at how their stars are um, distributed across their bodies. We can even get a sense for how dark matter is distributed throughout them. And in some ways, it's easier to study other galaxies than it is to study the Milky Way. Because imagine trying to study a whole house when you are stuck inside the house. It's really hard. right? Um, you know, we can't see the outside of it. We have a, a lot of trouble actually seeing at the center of our galaxy because there's so much dust and gas in between us. So it's easier, kind of, to study other ones.
0: That's fascinating. Mm -hmm. So with our local group, with like our 50, like, whenever you know, like United Galaxies of the (laughs) Milky Way, um, how, like, what's it kind of like? Like, we're kind of dumb. Like, we're giving you, like, Mm. we're just kind of giving you, like, big D energy, like, in the Milky Way (laughs) or whatever. Like, what's it like to be part of this group?
1: There are two big dominant galaxies in the local group. One of them is the Milky Way and the other is Andromeda. And they're kind of at opposite ends of the local group. They are the glue that holds this group together. And then there are a bunch of other smaller dwarf galaxies in between them, like the large and small Magellanic clouds. Um, there, There are a bunch of others that we haven't studied that much. Um, and I don't mention them much in the book because in the Milky Way's mind, it's like, why would I even bother with them? Um, I know that eventually I'm just going to like eat them and destroy them in a fight. So I don't want to get too emotionally attached. And that's why the Milky Way and Andromeda have such a strong connection, because they're like equal partners in in the strength that they can bring.
0: But the Magellanic Clouds are probably going to get smashed up and die
1: they are probably going to get slowly absorbed. Um the word that astronomers use is accreted, accreted into the Milky Way over time through gravity, but the Milky Way is like moving, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, the Milky Way isn't sitting still at all. Uh, It's moving all the time. For example, the Milky Way is moving towards the Andromeda galaxy at about uh, 100 kilometers per second. That's about 250,000 miles per hour. So, yeah, we're moving really fast. Why? Because of gravity.
0: So, part of the Big Bang thing, so the Big Bang happens like forever ago, honey. It like sets mm-hmm. off this whole like, you know, sheet of paper, sheet of flat paper. But maybe mm-hmm. when they say flat, it's actually like this.
1: Yeah, I think so.
0: Which is that why it's like there's the multi, the, you know, it's like the continuums. Like maybe there's like another me on like a different one of the planes. Oh my God. Oh my God. Okay. okay
1: now we're getting into the multiverse theory. Oh my God. Oh my God
0: uh, okay. That's not what I meant. I didn't mean to go there. So. <laughs> Okay, but so it's like that. So is that because at the beginning of the Big Bang, because of where the Milky Way and Andromeda was positioned, it Mm -hmm. just made them go towards each other? Like, why aren't we going away from each other?
1: Yes, I love this question.
0: And do we ever pulse? And do we ever pulse? Like, we're going towards each other right now, and then we could go away, or are we going to collide?
1: Mm-hmm, okay. Oh, yes, there's so much here. Okay, so at the beginning with the Big Bang... um, We saw in the early universe these little over and under densities. And as the universe expanded, those over dense regions just collected more material. And we are, it it just so happened that the material that became Andromeda and the material that became the Milky Way were close to each other. And they were close enough to each other that even with the expansion of the universe, their gravitational attraction was stronger than whatever was expanding the universe. That is why we aren't being pulled apart like the rest of the universe, because gravity is still stronger on these small local scales. We are eventually going to collide with the Andromeda Galaxy. It's gonna happen in like five billion years, um, but it's not going to be like they're not going to come together and just stick to each other. They're going to come together and they'll pass each other a couple times like a dance, actually. You know, they're like, they're like tangoing together. And eventually they will just come together. They'll mix all of their material and they will be one galaxy um, in like 8 billion years.
0: Will Earth explode when that
1: happens? No. So uh, one of the earliest calculations that I remember doing when I was training to be an astronomer was looking at this collision, this future collision of the Milky Way and Andromeda, and estimating how many stars will collide. And it turns out that even though each of these galaxies has hundreds of billions of stars in them, only about a handful of those stars will actually come in contact. Our solar system Will be totally fine. What will happen though is that uh, a bunch of new stars will form. uh, So the night sky will not be as dark anymore. You'll have all these new stars coming in from Andromeda. A burst of new star formation will happen. So I think it's going to be like a beautiful light show in a few billion years.
0: This could be really out of left field, but it's just where my curiosity (laughs) went. What was happening on Earth five billion years ago? Was that just like methane, mass extinction? Like there was no life yet or was there life yet?
1: The planet wasn't here yet five billion years ago. It wasn't. Mm -mm, No, the sun formed about four and a half billion years ago. And then it takes like... 10 ish million years for planets to form. Fuck me. That's going to be
0: forever for us to collide and see I that. Know. That's like forever.
1: Yeah. This is what I'm saying. Space is so huge that it takes time for things to happen, it takes time for things to come together. There's going to be like
0: 50 mass extinctions by then.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Probably. We have, we have another like four billion years before the sun changes its evolutionary stage. Um, the next stage for the sun is what we call a red giant. So it's going to puff up, uh, get, I think, as big as our orbit here at Earth. So unless the the our Earth moves out to a more distant orbit from the sun, our planet will get engulfed by the sun.
0: Maybe we could do a don't look up style, like not the end, but maybe we could build something that like because um, you know how like if you fart in space, you would like go forever, like the opposite <laughs> direction. Maybe we could like make our whole Earth fart towards the sun Ooh. to like, like but it had to be like, really powerful to just like yeah. push us away.
1: Okay, so we need to get everyone on Earth eating a steady diet of beans for like a month.
0: Like a machine that would like push oh, so much mach- <laughs> air that it would like move us. <laughs> or maybe it would have to be like nukes in space and then like the thing would push mm. us and we wouldn't get radio like radiation or something but four billion years mama you know we'll be fine right. we'll be unless like, reincarnation's real unless mm. reincarnation the thing and then we are so fucked
1: yeah yes i'm gonna be so True. mad like
0: if my outfits are cute in four billion years and they get like all fucked up from the sun so <laughs> because the milky way is not still it's constantly in flux Mm -hmm. that means that it's in flux due to like gravity and like andromeda and Mm -hmm. actually not the big bang because it was like our gravitational fields were just like always kind of we were just like always into each other which is why you said that we would go on a social media site to make andromeda Mm -hmm. jealous yes okay that makes sense so you know that the milky way has spent billions of years trying to strike a balance between creation and destruction that's we talked about that a little bit just now. Like that's going to continue <laughs> to be a thing.
1: Yeah. So,
0: what do stars, planets, and black holes have to do with the creation?
1: Mm, yes. Uh, well, the the Milky Way creates stars. Uh, uh, it's not as intentional in reality as I say it is in the book. Uh, obviously, it's a it's an autobiography. Um, so I had to assign some agency to the Milky Way, but. It, In the book, the Milky Way is like a scientist that takes a lot of pride in figuring out how to create stars from scratch, and then it feels really, really bad when those stars eventually die and stop fusing and stop glowing. So that's that's creation and destruction right there. When uh, the most massive stars die. I say die, but you know, they're not, they're not really dead and death. It doesn't, it's not the same.
0: They just don't have like the same energy to glow anymore.
1: Yes, exactly. They're not fusing in their cores. So when the most massive stars stop fusing, they explode in supernovae. And then what's left at the center is a black hole. So that again is creation and destruction happening kind of at the same time. Um, So the Milky Way knows that, kind of to create one thing, you almost have to rely on the destruction of something else to give you that material.
0: So we kind of covered this in the Lego study because I was like trying to understand black holes, but it was like 2016 me. So I think I maybe have gotten a little bit better since then. But so basically all black holes used to be gigantic stars that turned into supernovae and then they turn into black holes.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: Okay. Yes. So, and then black holes do suck up like every fucking thing around it, right?
1: They don't, they're not sucking like a vacuum. They are just a a big gravity pit. So they are just waiting for things to fall into them.
0: But it's going to be cold because the sun's not fusing anymore, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's going to be cold, although there is a lot of energy in these systems. If you have a massive enough black hole, it can form uh, the disk around it. Did you see the picture of uh, the event horizon around the black hole um, that was taken a couple years ago? No. Oh, oh my. Okay. So if I can pull up a picture of this M87 black hole... It was one of the most popular science images two years ago. Let me share my screen, maybe. Yes, please. Here you go.
0: Wow. So yeah. what, what am I looking at?
1: So here in the center is the black hole and then this big red Uh, ring around it that is the accretion disk around the black hole so stuff falling into the black hole when it gets really close it starts moving fast enough that you actually get friction in between the like these particles that are interacting and that creates heat which glows so we can see stuff around a really powerful black hole
0: wow Mm wow mm-hmm
1: I love this image because um, we had never taken a picture of a black hole before because they, they don't emit light. They just absorb it. This is the center of the black of the black hole. We actually can't like see it, but we can see everything right around it.
0: So what is this picture picking up then? Then like what were those like? So that was heat and that was like a thermo picture.
1: Yeah, it's heat. Um, I think that this is this was a radio image. Um, So we are seeing energy created as this material swirls into the black hole and gets really hot because it's moving together.
0: So what's the difference between a supernova and a supernovae?
1: Um, a supernova is one, and supernovae is multiple.
0: Ah, okay, Fierus. Yes. What are some of these other, like, sexy, like, astronomy words, like gamma ray bursts?
1: Mm, yes. That is an active area of research. But um, a gamma ray burst is when you see um, a, a lot of energy in the gamma part of the spectrum coming from one part of the galaxy, but, like, really short. Like a scream of gamma energy that lasts for, like, a couple seconds. And we don't know what forms them. We used to think that it was a sign of aliens. We do not think that anymore, but um, we're trying to figure out what's making them happen.
0: Okay, wait, what what picks up a gamma ray burst again then? A telescope?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, a telescope that is able to see in those high energy frequencies.
0: But you're not, but it's like you see it with your eyes. It's not measuring like heat or something.
1: Right, um, heat is infrared, So if you're looking, um, if you're using like night vision goggles or if you're using like heat sensors, that's going to be looking at the infrared part of the spectrum, which is less energetic than the visible part of the spectrum that we can see. And then gamma rays are more energetic than what we can see.
0: Interest. Okay, then what's tidal (laughs) ripping?
1: Tidal ripping is when, it's basically when gravity is so strong that it pulls something apart. Mm. And you see these, you see tidal effects pretty much everywhere in space. One of the moons of Jupiter called Europa has liquid water under its surface, even though it has an icy core because of tidal forces from the other moons, like using their gravity to stretch and contract Europa. Um, You also see this around black holes where the gravity is so extreme that uh, it can tear stuff apart. And we have a really fun word for that around black holes. It's called spaghettification.
0: It's where things just get pulled apart. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. wait. So back to the tidal ripping. So that Europa has an ice core,
1: Uh, a rocky core and an icy surface.
0: So in the way that our core is like, you know, that core, then there's like the liquid hot magma. There's is like a core and then it's like the ice. But but then the the tidal ripping is so strong that there's like Mm -hmm. liquid water within the ice because it literally gets pulled apart into water.
1: Yeah. So the um, there's like a mile or so of ice at the top, this big ice sheet. And then underneath that is a liquid water ocean, because when you stretch something over and over again, that creates friction and that creates heat. So the ice melts.
0: Could there be some like Antarctic ass fish down there? We think maybe.
1: How are we going to figure that out? Could you like a Mars lander, but a Europa lander? Yes, that is Actually, something that astronomers are planning right now. Now, is that going to take
0: fifty fucking billion, or like some stupid amount of time to get over there?
1: No, it's not going to take a lot of time. It will take a lot of money, though.
0: How much time? Like, if it takes how much? It takes like the eight months to get to Mars, or something, doesn't it? Or like six Uh, months? How long did they say? Because we did an episode, but I can't remember.
1: Yeah, it depends on like when you leave, because sometimes Mars can be on the other side of the sun from us, right? Because we're not orbiting at the same speed.
0: So, if you did a well-timed launch.
1: You can get there in a few months.
0: And would the biggest deal to get to Europa be that fucking, that asteroid belt, huh?
1: Mm, yeah, we're going to have to navigate through that. But we have sent telescopes out there. Both Voyagers went out there. But the really hard thing, Jonathan, would be um, digging through that ice. Oh, because
0: it's a mile.
1: Yeah, it's a lot of ice to get through.
0: And it would be like unethical to send a bomb to the, because to, yeah. it could fuck stuff up.
1: Yeah, we don't want to contaminate other potential ecosystems. There's a whole branch of law called space law that looks at stuff like this.
0: So you would basically have to figure out a way to get like a big enough ship with like a huge drill.
1: Mm hmm. Yes. And that is a mission that we are planning for uh, Europa. I think it's called the the Europa Clipper mission.
0: Well, maybe when they got there, they would maybe re- realize that maybe it's not a mile deep.
1: mm. Maybe Maybe you won't
0: have to go because like how are you going to get a mile worth of fucking?
1: I I think that what they're going to have to do, they'll want to study the ice. So they'll dig out a little um, like core of ice and study that. And then they'll probably try to find a place where there's like a natural fissure or something there's a moon around Saturn called Enceladus that has geysers uh, so it's a similar situation and a water ocean under a sheet of ice but it shoots out these plumes of water so we've actually sent a telescope flying through one of those geysers um, around Enceladus
0: but it couldn't send anything back obviously so we just like
1: it sent some stuff back really? It sent enough back for us to know that it is a liquid water ocean underneath.
0: No, it sent yeah. a thing all the way back to Earth. Not just like a, a picture.
1: F- it sent data back. Data. Yeah.
0: Wow. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I'm, okay. So in my in my little memoir over the top, I talk about my like first partner Sergey and how I kind of refer to him as like he was like a, like the love was like a black hole. And then I couldn't help but notice in this book, you talk about like the central black hole, s- mm-hmm. Sarge. Um, yes. Very, cl- very close. Can we talk about that relationship and like what's like the scientific hot goss about like <laughs> the Milky Way's like central black hole, Sarge?
1: Yes. So I was writing this book during a pandemic when I was depressed. Like I, I was really sad and I... I don't think it was conscious at first, but I just thought, you know, why can't galaxies be depressed? And wouldn't it be so cool if I could use this book to kind of work through my mental health and maybe help other people do the same? So it made sense for me to use black holes as a metaphor for depression and anxiety and other mental health struggles, as if it were a physical manifestation. So in the book, Sarge, The Black Hole, it's everything you hate about yourself. It's all of the intrusive thoughts. It's all of those little voices in your head saying that you're not good enough and no one else loves you and you're not worthy. And I needed the Milky Way to see that and to acknowledge it and then to figure out how to deal with it. Um, And I wanted it to be inspired by the science too. So the gravity of a galaxy cannot control a black hole. um, But if the galaxy is... uh, like a sentient being, then it can control what happens around the black hole. It can control the the material that falls into it. So maybe it doesn't feed the black hole as much or it can um, insulate the black hole. So just like keep stuff away from it. And that was really powerful for me because I realized, you know, I this is a part of who I am. This is a part of how my brain works. I can't change that necessarily, but I can change how I approach it. I can change what I surround myself with. I can change how I um, think about it. And so, I, yeah, that's that's what Sarge was.
0: I love Sarge. Wait, so because wait, because you because galaxies really can can like they can't control what falls into the black hole, but they can be like, oh, I, I really like this planet, so I'm just gonna like scooch it away, or like I'm gonna use my gravity to like get it away from there or something.
1: Or uh we see in other galaxies that don't have as much material around their black holes. Um, if the black hole can't eat as much of the material, then it can't grow as fast. And we've seen on the other side of the spectrum, we've seen galaxies that have succumbed to their black holes. And um, their black holes can um, actually, we call it quenching. They can make galaxies stop forming stars, which is essentially killing the galaxies. And so... You know, we've we've seen galaxies succumb to it, and we've seen galaxies that are better. This is this is me anthropomorphizing again, but we've seen galaxies that aren't as dominated by their central black holes. And so, I wanted to show the Milky Way getting to that point of realizing what it can do to um, quiet down Sarge.
0: I think because of all of the, like, existential threat to, like, queer joy that I see, I always get, like, PTSD when I think about black holes. So, again, mm. we're not going to get a black hole. Like, we're not all getting such a new one. It's fine. It no, was just... no, 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 no. There's just, like, the... that one's strong enough in the Milky Way.
1: Exactly. Yeah, the... The black hole at the center of our galaxy is so far away that we are not affected by it. Oh, because we're out in the rings. Yeah, we're out in this disk. We're so far away from it. I want to push back against the very common misconception that black holes suck everything in because they are just gravity pits. So if our sun became a black hole, like if we woke up tomorrow and the sun was a black hole, but with the same mass as the sun, we wouldn't fall into it. We would just continue orbiting the same way we always have.
0: And freeze to death, right?
1: Well, yes, that would be an issue, (laughs) but we wouldn't fall in.
0: And is that going to be what happens in five billion years? Like the sun's Mm -hmm. going to get really big and then it'll be a It won't be a black hole after it because it expands and stuff. It's never going to happen to the sun.
1: No, our sun isn't massive enough. So our sun will puff up into a red giant. It will uh, shed away its outer materials like it's like, oh, I'm too hot. Let me take all my clothes off. And then it's going to shrink back down into a white dwarf star.
0: And then it won't be as hot as it is now.
1: Nope. It's going to be uh, a very cool rock and then it will just radiate away the rest of its heat until it, it is like a, a chunk of rock in space.
0: But that's not for five billion years.
1: That well, that isn't for another like 10 billion years. Five billion years is when we'll become the, the red giant and then it'll spend. A, a, actually, I'm not sure how long, but, you know, millions of years, at least in that phase. Do
0: we have telescopes that are strong enough to see, like, on the surface of planets? Like, how we can look at a plane and see, like, the ground? Like, are any of our telescopes, like, strong enough to see that, like, a really, really, really far away? Or can you only see, like, the planet?
1: We can do that for some of the planets in our solar system, but we cannot do that for exoplanets outside of our solar system. Oh, so
0: exoplanets outside of just this solar system, not outside the Milky Way.
1: Correct. I think the first time we saw a planet in a different galaxy was just... Last year. Wow. Yeah.
0: So, because I am curious what we're going to look like after the sun is a white dwarf. Was there ever a solar system that like maybe supported life and we could just like go see the Microsoft, like all like the crumbled, like, you know, Manhattan or something and like there was probably (laughs) like people there. But then. You know, but then like the sun did its thing and then it just like all went away. But like the ruins are still there.
1: Mm, That's a really great question. We are actively interested in solving this because we live around a star that will eventually turn into a white dwarf. So we want to know if Earth could survive that. So we've looked for other systems um, where there's a, a white dwarf star that used to be a star like the sun. And we have seen planets orbiting in the habitable zone of these white dwarf stars.
0: So there would be a habitable zone of a white dwarf, even though it's not that hot anymore?
1: It would have to be much closer to the star. What we think would happen is that planets would have to migrate in after the star becomes a white dwarf um, because if the planet were actually that close to the star when it puffed up into a red giant you it would just burn it be, yeah burned up it would have been eaten by the star so we think that planets would have to move in and out to closer orbits have
0: we seen another example where maybe like because the red dwarf got so big it kind of pushed like the planets out and then as it contracted and got skinnier the planet kind of came back in with it
1: We think that that's possible, but we haven't seen it in action because these things take so long to happen. So what we would have to do is observe multiple different systems at these different stages. And we we haven't yet.
0: Okay, yes. Okay, all right. So you note that myths were some of humans like first attempts at scientific inquiry, you know, because it's like we just can't it's like how in fifth grade I told everyone that I was go- that like I-, I was like best friends with Hansen. So <laughs> what are some of the standout creation stories about the Milky Way?
1: Oh, I love I love this question. Um one very popular one that I didn't talk in about in the book because I wanted to kind of avoid the classical Greek myths was uh, the story of Hera, the goddess of um, marriage and like childbirth. She was married to Zeus, who was Hercules's father, um, but Hera was not Hercules's mother. So there's one story where Hera, while she's sleeping, Zeus like puts Hercules up to her bosom so that she can nurse him. And then when she wakes up, she sees this baby who is not hers um, nursing at her teat. Um, Didn't think I would say that out loud. Uh, So (laughs) she sees that and she's like, this isn't my baby. So she throws Hercules away and like there's a spurt of milk uh, and that becomes the Milky Way. Um, So that's one story.
0: They were creative, honey.
1: Oh, yes. So the word the word galaxy actually comes from the ancient Greek word uh, galactos, which means milk.
0: I thought you were going to say breast milk, which would have made it like a little bit. But yeah, but I guess it's like all milk is breast milk. It's
1: all milk, yeah. I would just be
0: remiss if I didn't mention because anytime I talk about breast milk, I always have an intrusive thought from a league of their own when Madonna is mm. teaching the one girl to read. And then like the girl who's learning to read is like m- m- milky, wet breast." I say it every time you ever talk about milk. I just I we can edit it out because it's like it's like a reflex. Like if someone says like breast milk, I mm-hmm. feel completely compelled to like recap that story from huh. their bus trip. Like it's like a, it's something I, I honestly can't continue in the conversation until I say m- 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 milky wet br- breasts. So <laughs> I did it. We can did it. progress. What are the other creation stories around them? <laughs> Obviously there's like the whole, I was thinking like, I don't think the milky way gets like a name check in the Bible, but the Bible mm. said that like, you know, the earth is like 10,000 years old and on and, like, you know, Rib yeah. and the lady and whatever.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, the a lot of these um, like newer religious texts, I say like Christianity is a newer religion if you look at the whole timescale of, of the planet. And those texts tend to focus more on the creation of our planet instead of the creation of the universe. Or, you know, there's a lot of blending, you know, like the words universe and world and planet, they they have meant different things at different times. Um, and, and there's a lot of overlap between them. So I haven't found a lot of Milky Way creation myths in Christian and uh, Abrahamic texts. Oh, because they were
0: all about like Earth.
1: Earth, yeah. But um, if you look at older, some more like... Um, polytheistic religions. One of my absolute favorites that did make it into the book, but I wanna highlight it here, is the Khoisan Milky Way creation myth. So the Khoisan people live in Southern Africa and they have this myth of the Milky Way that this young girl was dancing around a fire at night And she needed to get home for dinner because, you know, dancing makes you hungry. And she uh, at the time, there were no stars in the sky, so she didn't have a way to light her path home. So she took embers from the fire that she was dancing around and she threw them up into the air. And that became the Milky Way that lit her way home. And I just love that myth so much. Um, that it needed to be in the book, but there are others in the book. I talk about a Finnish Milky Way creation myth. There are surprisingly, uh, many Milky Way creation myths that do talk about milk. Um, so it's interesting that even though not every country in the world has called it the Milky Way or thought of it as a Milky Path across the sky, several have.
0: Ah, Mm -hmm. I love that story. I know. So one thing that I feel like has surprised me in getting curious is like, Sometimes people are like, actually, girl, like, you are kind of a scientist. Like, you just didn't really know. I think about, like, we got to interview this, like, fierce, like, anthropological biologist. And she studies, like, the evolution of hair. And so when we were talking, she was like, well, you're kind of like a practical scientist because, like, you were out there doing these hair things that we do in the lab. Like, you have, like, a different experience of it because you're, like, in the salon. And I think a lot of us do scientific stuff that we don't even realize is scientific, you know, because mm-hmm. we just like become separated from like education or something the older we get. So like some of those early, you know, creation story myths or, you know, it was humans trying to attempt to explain something they didn't have the like scientific language for. So like what makes some of those early story forms like really scientific inquiry?
1: Yeah, the fact that they are basing these stories off of observations. So many myths that have been told throughout time have been an attempt to explain natural phenomena. This is why you see m- uh, myths everywhere in the world about um like what makes thunder happen, what makes the changing of the seasons, what makes an eclipse happen. And they are telling these stories that are based on their framework for understanding the world and it, it, they make sense. You can you can see the the like rigorous attempt at understanding nature i say if you turn your head to the side and squint when you look at myths you can see scientific truth um and you know there's kind of a resurgence now at least in astronomy of respecting and acknowledging indigenous knowledge um because these stories that people have been told these stories that people have been telling they they hold truth in them um one one story that comes to mind is monarch butterflies, they migrate um, and other birds migrate, too. And for a long time, these like European scientists did not know where the monarch butterflies were going. And then they uh, sent a, a scientist man person to go and figure out where they were going. And they found them in Mexico. But indigenous people in Mexico, they knew that the monarchs were flying there. There is indigenous knowledge about the world around us and it gets codified in these stories and in these myths. So, um, yeah, I see myth and science as like two sides of the same coin and that coin buys us an understanding of the world around us.
0: I think that is so fascinating. We had the honor to talk to Dr. Jessica Hernandez, who um, is an a incredible indigenous scientist, and she has this really cool book. It's called Fresh Banana Leaves, and she talks about that. And I think I also think of like Eastern and Western health like that. I have a lot of like um, doctors in my family, and it's like the second you talk about like acupuncture or like any Eastern thing, there it's like you know eye roll, but it's like these are all le- beautifully legitimate, full mm-hmm. of integrity, different forms of science from different places, and they all deserve respect. They all deserve time and knowledge and attention and i just i love that and i love that that's kind of happening in astronomy at astrology oh my god it happened astronomy, to me. astronomy yeah. yeah see that's how i ended up in astronomy class when i was 17 because i thought i was going to learn about like zodiac stuff and then i went in and i was like what is all this fucking math mm, like it was mm. it was like the worst mistake i ever made in college and then of course that's I, a
1: rude awakening for it sure happened twice
0: because i failed the first semester and then i had to retake it <gasps> and then i fucking and then i think i told the story i'm getting curious and i'll just say it again really fast okay so in the second, because I actually did really good until the final in season or in season one, in the first semester, I was like, <laughs> I, could, I I, kind of understood. Then the final, I just fell off and I like, mm. and I failed it and that pulled my grain up. So I failed, had to take it again. But I was like, I did so good in the first half. I'm like, not going to go to class for the first three weeks. Mm. So then when I went for the first time, it was a midterm and it was right after the tsunamis of 2004. Oh no. So I fictitiously killed my stepsister who had never been to Thailand, but I just said that like, we just had like a death in the family and that like, we weren't sure where she was, but we were like trying to find her and it had just like a really traumatic, like, you know, January for us. Cause like, you know, so this was like the last week of January. And so I was just like, can I please come back in a week and like retake the midterm? Like, it's just, I don't, you know, I failed last, like the first semester Mm -hmm. that I got. And then I just dropped out of school. I just, after that, I was so embarrassed. I just, because I, I kind of dropped to my knees and, like, cried in front of the entire, like, auditorium of, like, you know, 200 students in there. And so then I just, like, I when they walked out of the door, I was just like, ah! And then I would just dropped out. I was like, it's just, like, the worst. I was just the worst person. Wow. Was, like, it was astronomy
1: that, that pushed you out.
0: It was astronomy. And it mm-hmm. was, like, just, like, such a hardcore lie that I could, I just, that's, like, you know, you just learn, when you're 17, you just learn, like, you make mistakes, and then you, mm-hmm. like, learn to not do such gigantic So, you know, I didn't mean to take that detour. We're coming back. (laughs) So I think I see a lot of my, like, even just in this episode that we've done so far, it's like a lot of my, like, Eurocentric, like, Christian-centric, like, it's like I'm really scared of a doomsday thing. But it sounds like we're really just going to, like, blend with Andromeda and it's going to be... Or wait, no. To even blend with Andromeda, we got to survive the sun first.
1: Yeah, so if we survive that, uh, then... Andromeda will come, will merge, and uh, that should be totally fine. But if you zoom forward many billions of years, then we start talking not about the end of our solar system or our galaxy. Then we're talking about the end of the whole universe. Why? Because we physicists and astronomers think of the universe as this collection of energy. There's energy moving around all the time. And eventually that energy will fizzle out. The universe will get so big that the average temperature is basically zero degrees Kelvin. Um, Everything will be so far apart that they can't interact anymore. So you don't get these big collisions of galaxies forming new stars. So when we get to the point in the universe when stars aren't forming and when everything is super cold, that stuff can't move around anymore, then the the universe is kind of dead. There are... like five different potential scenarios for the end of the universe, the one that we think is most likely would take trillions of years. That's a long time. And
0: it's just like a slow death.
1: And then would it re-Big Bang again and restart? That's not what we think is the most likely scenario, because for Uh. it to Big Bang again, the universe would have to expand, stop, contract back in on itself until it gets to like the the tiny little point that it was at the big bang and then it might re-expand but what we think is going to happen is that the universe will continue to expand so much that eventually the galaxy clusters are all isolated Uh, within a galaxy cluster they'll all of the galaxies will merge. So all of the galaxies in the local group will merge and become one big galaxy. And then it'll take time for all of the gas in that one big galaxy to get turned into stars. It'll take more time for all of those stars to stop fusing. And, and after that happens, when there's no material to make new stars and all of those stars die, then, then everything's done. <sighs> But like Jonathan, trillions of years trillions of years from now I just am saying that I'm advocating
0: for like the Big Bang times two theory like whichever one okay. of the side that that is like I, I'm needing like a kid like I just like even if it isn't like trillions of years because like that just makes me want to go do drugs
1: mm the, we can call that the big bounce theory the big bounce is if there's another uh big bang there
0: has to be like because I also just feel like I'd love to come back as like a cat human hybrid
1: ooh love.
0: Like I want to be like a real life version of like the most recent cat. Like I want a furry (laughs) butthole. I want to be like life sized. Like I just like that's what I want, and I don't want to live in a world where that is gonna like just expand so far we get like and also Mm. fully. I didn't see that coming, tbh. Like that's gonna be what we. That's what is what you guys think.
1: That is what we think, but you know. Theoretical physicists are always coming up with new ideas. Can you
0: advocate for one? I don't like that one.
1: Yeah. Okay. I, I will. Here's one. Um, it is possible that every time a supernova happens that forms a black hole, that that on the other side of the black hole makes a whole new Big Bang, makes a whole new universe. So maybe, maybe that's that what's going
0: on. one I like a lot better. <laughs>
1: And in one of those universes, Jonathan, you can be your cat-human hybrid for sure.
0: <sighs> I'm so obsessed with you can't stand it. So there's like five kind of, there's like big freeze, big rip, mm-hmm. big slurp, big crunch, big bounce. Big bounce is the whole, on every other side of a black hole, there's a new universe starting. No,
1: big bounce is the universe will expand and then contract and then expand again in a new big bang.
0: So we're just like, so maybe in that Big Bounce theory, we're just like in the midst of one of the ever expansions contracted, like because mm-hmm. maybe that could have been like, this yeah. could be like the fifth one by now. Yeah, exactly.
1: It's a never ending cycle. And there are some mythologies that have that cyclical universe in Hindu mythology in Norse mythology. The universe forms, ends and then forms again. And it's always moving.
0: OK, so that's Big Bounce. What's Big Crunch?
1: Big Crunch is the universe expands and then contracts, but there is no re-expansion.
0: Big slurp.
1: Big (laughs) big slurp is theoretical. It has to do with um, quantum physics and the way that um, our energy states are working. So basically, um, the the quantum rules that make our reality work, they might not be in their most energetically favorable state. And so it could be possible for those states to, like, reset themselves to be more energetically favorable. And if that happens, then it's almost like a computer being turned on and off. Like, we would, our universe would end and we wouldn't know it. It would happen, like, at the speed of light.
0: And then what?
1: And then there would be a new universe with new rules of physics. So,
0: like, everyone, like, gravity would just stop. We'd all, like, float off the planet. Everyone, like, goes out into space like an interstellar. Their heads gets crushed because there was no, like, you know, helmet and we weren't ready for everything to switch. And then it just, like, all resets with new rules, like, right away.
1: Right away. Yeah.
0: But that would be in, like, trillions of years.
1: It could happen any moment.
0: Okay, great. And then what's the big rip? <laughs>
1: The big rip is if the universe continues to expand forever and gets faster and faster so that um, even galaxy clusters get pulled apart and even like individual atoms get pulled apart.
0: Perfect. So Mm -hmm. that's a messy. and Oh,
1: yeah. Um, That is the Milky Way's least favorite way for the universe to end because it would take Andromeda away.
0: Mm -hmm. And then Big Freeze is the one that we talked about. Yeah. Everything expands so much. We Mm -hmm. just
1: just cool down until there's no energy left.
0: It seems like there are two ways to see ourselves in relation to the Milky Way. One is that our lives are insignificant. That's the one that made me want to go do drugs, uh, you know, because it's going to end. And the other is that our lives are precious, which we ended up getting there because, you know, like they're. So how do you make how do you make like how do you make sense of that choice?
1: Jonathan, I think you're really going to appreciate this because I don't see it as an either or. I see it as a both and. We Mm -hmm. are both insignificant in the grand scheme of the universe. And we are precious because if the universe is so big, we are all we have. So, you know, why not treat everything that we have with the utmost respect and care? Because we, we're we not going to interact with anything else. I, I said before, and I hold to it. I do believe that there's life out there, but it is so far away and it probably doesn't look or sound or behave anything like us. We are all we have. So let's let's love each other as like cheesy as that sounds.
0: Well, and as like many stars as there are, like, you know, the planets and the stars, like the five billion, the 15. I mean, like, I always think, and I think i said this on this podcast a lot before, it's like there were so many like eggs and spermies that we had to like become America's or whatever country you were born in's next top model of your mom's uterus, you know, <laughs> from your dad's birth. So it's like, that is precious. So even though there is so many of us, there still could have been so many more and different. And it's like all of us have like such a unique chance to be here because it's like, it really is like a wonder of mathematics that we yeah. even got here in the first place.
1: Absolutely. So
0: what helps you wrap your head around the Milky Way? Is it just like time and your like extreme scientific expertise?
1: I think that I just take a very chill approach to it. Like when, when I was in one of my early astronomy classes and we were talking about the expansion of the universe and these billion year timescales, I did not let myself get to the point where I was like, oh, my God, what's, what is a billion years? I can't imagine that. Instead, I was like, oh, OK, a billion years. That's a number. I can look at that number and I I think of space in terms of data. I think of it in terms of like matrices of numbers that I can run calculations on. And since writing the book, I have expanded that view to thinking about like I have a very good <laughs> mental map, I think, of the galaxy. Like I I can picture the disk squirreling in my brain and I can see stellar orbits moving around the galaxy. Um But I, you know, it's zoomed down to to my brain size. And when I feel myself getting caught up in wondering how big a trillion is, I'm just like, you know what, Moya? That's a number. And it's a big number, but, you know, it's, it's not an intimidating number. Like, this is a number that has been with the galaxy, has been with the universe since the beginning of time. And just, like, accept it. I don't know if that's Mm. helpful for anyone else, but that's how I do it.
0: It just helped the fuck out of me. I'm obsessed. So as listeners can tell, you know, you are really good at science communication. It's like what you've dedicated your life to. So how did you find your voice as a site? Is it just kind of being chill with it? Like being patient (laughs) with yourself and like patient with people?
1: Oh, that was the opposite. This was an intentional decision. This was years of building skills. So the one thing that I think I did that helped me the most was in 2018, I had a year of yes. It was a year where I said yes to every professional opportunity that came my way. And I got so far out of my comfort zone and it helped me so much with my imposter thoughts because before that year, if someone invited me to give a talk, I'd think, oh, am I the right person for this? Can I really do this? But for my year of yes, it didn't matter if I thought I was the right person for the job. I said yes, and then I did it, and I killed it, and that like begot more opportunities. Um, so in that year of yes, I really focused on finding my voice and finding the audience that I love to work with, and I I did a bunch of different stuff. I did my first stand up routine. I went to South Africa on like two weeks notice and spent almost a month there traveling around the country and talking to people about science and my journey. Um, I decided to write this book proposal. This this book came out of my year of yes. So I I really um, encourage people to have their own year of yes. If there's something that they want to move towards or if they want to make a career pivot or even just like improve on some of their skills, a year of yes is a great way to do that.
0: How did you make science so accessible without losing meaning and nuance?
1: I think it's a matter of meeting people where they are. Uh, I am not afraid of using jargon because I know that if I explain what the jargon means, then someone can learn that. Um, So I like to meet people where they are. I love to use metaphors. We humans are really good at understanding metaphors as long as they're explained clearly. So I use a lot of those. um, And I... You know, just like talk like a normal person. Uh, I don't think I have to use stuffy academic language to talk about these academic concepts. In fact, I think that if you can only talk about these concepts in this stuffy language, that's a sign that maybe you don't understand it as well as you think you do. Because if you can <laughs> translate it to just like normal language, if you can use slang while you're doing science communication, that means you really understand what you're saying.
0: So the book is really just like so incredible. And you guys, even in this time, we still only scratch like the very like surface of the book. And there's so much more for you to take from it. I think that writing it in this autobiography form was so genius. Thank what you. do you hope that people gain from, from, from the book?
1: I really want people to shift their perspective of how they see the world. Because it is so easy to fall into the trap of thinking like... In your tiny little view of the world, I'm, I'm cupping my hands over my eyes as if you can see it, um, but the world is so much bigger than what we can see in our everyday life. And the Milky Way sees that. The Milky Way sees everything at once. And I was hoping that by giving people the chance to get into the mindset of a galaxy for a little bit, that they would shift to that mindset and, and um, I don't know, think about people other than themselves or their like immediate Um, friends and family. Mm.
0: So then you write that like science fiction stories are aspirational myths, which I love this. Um, They're humanity's dreams for the future. What are your hopes for this future and what mysteries of the universe most excite you?
1: First and foremost, I really hope we get climate change figured out. We have the tools to do what we need to do. We know how to scrub CO2 from the atmosphere. We understand the policies that we should put in place to protect the environment, but we're just not Doing it, so I hope that we can get the people who have power to understand that, or that we can like get new people in power who already understand it. So that's hope number one. Hope number two is uh, kind of like the shift in perspective thing. I hope that we can start seeing ourselves as this, um, this global unit as as humanity. Our identities are really important, but I think we're missing the identity of like human when we really define ourselves. So I hope we can get there. And for mysteries of the universe, I want to know if there are aliens. I, I really do. I think that if, if we discover definitive evidence that there is alien life out there, that is when I can die happy. Um, aside from that, it's, uh, I guess understanding dark energy would be cool, but really it's, it's the aliens for me. Extraterrestrial
0: life, aliens, dark matter, those like really good goals. I'm really here for you for that. <laughs> I'd like for us to wind down on this note: courtesy of the Milky Way. I'm fly as hell, I'm beautiful and strong, and I do my job well. How can we harness the power of the Milky Way in our own lives?
1: Oh, yes. Let's let's think about Sarge for a second. Sarge is the physical manifestation of everything that the Milky Way hates about itself and everything that it thinks other galaxies hate about it too. And we humans have that. We have these voices in our heads. We have external factors that are, you know, making us think less of ourselves. I think it would be great if everyone could embrace the Milky Way's uh, philosophy a little bit more and really try to tune out those voices. Think about what makes you awesome, because there there are things that make everyone awesome. So figure out what that is for you and really embrace it and love that about yourself, because, you know. The Milky Way doesn't love you, but I do. <laughs> ah,
0: Dr. Moya McTeer, I'm so grateful for your time, for your scholarship, for your work. Your new book, The Milky Way, An Autobiography of Our Galaxy is out. You guys got to listen to it or read it. Did you do the audio too of it? I am. Yeah. Yeah. So listen to it, read it, get into her podcast, Exalor. So good. Dr. McTeer, thank you so much for your time and coming on Getting Curious.
1: Oh, my God. Thank you so much. And thank you for everything you do. Jonathan, this is an amazing SciCom podcast. Like, I don't—you are really an amazing science communicator, and I'm so grateful that you're out here doing this. No. Yes. I'm pausing it on that. <laughs> You've been listening to Getting
0: Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. Our guest this week was Dr. Moya McTeer. You'll find links to her work in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, introduce a friend, honey, and please show them how to subscribe. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Curious with JBN. Our socials are run and curated by Middle Seat Digital. Our editor is Andrew Carson. Getting Curious is produced by me, Erica Ghetto, and Zara Krim.